0: studio in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox.
1: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on our New Year's episode, Elephants, Fear, and Clay.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Kenneth Librecht, who will discuss the physics of snowflakes.
0: Also, we'll find out what entropy is.
1: So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show.
0: Welcome back to Perka Crocs, Happy New Years, and I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Happy New Year to you, Frank.
0: <laughs> one more hits the road, right? I,
1: you know, I'm surprised we made it this far, actually. <laughs> I was expecting for North Korea to blow us up easily in 2006, but I guess we made it this far. <laughs>
0: you think we'll hit puberty one of these days?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm still hoping to hit infancy. <laughs> I'm still stuck in the womb a good place to be in the beginning of a new year, right? Yeah. Fresh start on life. Uh-huh. Tabla Rasa. World yet? <laughs> well, it's coming up, so I guess we're looking forward to that next week. Yes. <laughs> See what Steve Jobs has to tell us.
0: It's almost as good as the Nobel Prizes, right? <laughs>
1: I think it's better than the Nobel Prizes. In fact, if it were a choice between getting G5 or a Nobel Prize, I think I'd have to go with the G5. Oh, yeah.
0: does everything for me.
1: It's really a lot more useful than the Nobel Prize. Uh,
0: I, I think so, too. Nobel
1: Prize isn't even internet-ready.
0: Worth the wireless?
1: Well, maybe they'll start putting RFID tags in them so that no. you can't counterfeit them. I can tell we're still a little loopy from the New Year celebration. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did you have a good New Year?
0: I was pretty good. I got kind of wasted, though.
1: <laughs> but you don't need New Year's to get wasted, Frank.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm prepared. I'm really yeah, well, The air just gives me high, you know. <laughs> Must be the oxygen or something. <laughs> so I do have an animal fact to begin with. Uh,
1: I was curious if the new year had uh, prevented the animal fact from making it through, but it, uh, apparently it has. So.
0: so what do you do with all the uh, expired your experiments? So... Let's just
1: say that I, I rarely go hungry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it turns out archaeologists have found that the ancient Peruvians had actually held animal funerals and turned them together with their masters high regard for them, I guess.
1: Did they mummify them?
0: In fact, they were. In a recent excavation, they found 40 mummified dogs in the uh, Ilo Valley in Peru. And not only that, they were buried with blankets and food alongside with their masters.
1: It's comforting to know that even though I won't make it into uh, nirvana in the afterlife, at least Fido will. (laughs) So this is sort of more like the uh, mummified animal fact of the week.
0: (laughs) Indeed. I guess they weren't the only ones. The Egyptians probably did the same thing too. Yeah. But I do have a real story, and it's actually another uh, animal related story. Ah, alright. So, are you afraid of cancer, Charles?
1: Not as much as I am of mummified pets coming back to life, which is a very real possibility in 2007, I think.
0: Stranger things have happened, right? And
1: well, I lost any illusions that strange things could happen once George Bush got elected. <laughs> so I'm, I'm fully, fully prepared for anything that you know, I was going to say
0: the same thing, too. Yeah. But it turns out rats that have greater levels of fear have also higher instances of cancer. This is research carried out at the University of Chicago by a Martha McClintock. And in a journal, Hormones and Behavior, they showed that rats that were fearful had 80% chance of cancer by middle age compared to a 38% with the uh, adventuresome rats.
1: So the uh, moral of the story is seize the marrow out of life and you won't get cancer.
0: Temperament seems to have an uh, impact as how these tumors appear and how they will grow. And it seems like the more fearful rats had irregular reproductive cycles. That's part mm. of the reason, I guess.
1: Okay, uh, I imagine uh, all the hormones and that's in the system is essentially... Very caustic to the body, and it's probably causing. Probably stressing d-
0: it with low and high levels probably is not a good.
1: Thing. Stress hormones in general are good in the short term, but in the long term, right, they yeah. have all kinds of bad effects, right? Right. So probably not surprising that they also cause cancer.
0: Yeah. So it's not clear what implications this has for humans, but it does show temperament is linked strongly with cancer.
1: So I guess the implication for humans is don't buy a fearful rat if you want a good pet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, so if anyone wants to know more, they can read about it in hormones and behavior.
1: Well, you know, since it is the new year, I'm not just going to leave it with two animal facts. I'm adding a third animal fact.
0: Oh, man. I think we can beat the Discovery Channel one of these days.
1: (laughs) Animals Gone Wild, the new video that we should be putting out. So this actually has to do with elephants. Elephants. Yes. My
0: favorite creature.
1: Elephants and, oddly enough, parrots. Do they talk to each other? Well, at least an elephant apparently wants to be a parrot.
0: Oh, really? What, it flaps its ears to fly then?
1: <laughs> Only with enough alcohol. <laughs> but uh, what I'm talking about is that a, there's an elephant in a uh, zoo in Korea which mm. has learned to mimic the sounds of its master. Really? So it can basically say the equivalent or produce the sounds of the equivalent of such words as foot, good, or sit. Uh-huh. And apparently these are all commands that its trainer had used. What happened was a bunch of trainers thought they were hearing some kind of person talking out of the elephant's mouth. Right. But it turns out the elephant was actually producing the sounds itself Uh by sticking its trunk into its mouth, blowing air through its trunk, Uh and using the cavities and what crosses its teeth to create these sounds.
0: Wow, that's pretty amazing.
1: They're thinking this might be an example of the elephant's ability to try and bond with those it's closest to, because apparently elephants have about the intelligence of a baby. Right. So they try and mimic those that they're closest to. Well, they
0: do have big brains, right?
1: Well, I think most of that's actually just (laughs) representing the body. Ah. (laughs) Anyway, it was published in an issue of Nature.
0: Alright, so some news coming out of 911. So it turns out the anthrax during those anthrax powder scare turns out that they were not as virulent as was once thought. So, in fact, they're not the weapons grade anthrax that some of the earlier assessments had claimed that they were.
1: Sort of your run-of-the-mill anthrax.
0: <laughs> yeah, just purified, high-concentration anthrax. It's not been specifically treated to uh, act as a, a military weapon. This was work carried out by Douglas Beecher at the FBI, and what he's showing is that the anthrax is uh, very easy to make, and actually anyone with a simple lab could easily make a 1000000000000 spore per gram uh, sample mm-hmm. and mail it. But it uh, takes a
1: special modification to make this anthrax particularly virulent.
0: No, there are actually a uh, aim strain out there which is incredibly virulent, oh. uh, but which this is not the same one. Oh, I see. This sort of contradicts the earlier uh, assertion that you need like very pure and very virulent anthrax to cause any damage. In fact, with this one, five people had died from this incident. Right.
1: I suppose if it's concentrated enough, the anthrax could be uh, quite deadly. Yeah.
0: So. This was in a recent edition of Applied Environmental Microbiology.
1: Okay, and finally clay.
0: You mold it, and it solidifies, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that's one of the advantages of clay. Apparently, it's very useful in material science because of uh, the properties that it has. Or...
0: Also, going to getting a facial, right?
1: I think the whole body, mud sort of thing, is kind of cool, too. Yeah. But you're picking that out of various orifices for weeks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, what researchers are doing is they're trying to create composites of clay and various synthetic polymers. Uh huh. But there's a problem because when you try and mix the two in large proportions, right. they don't mix well, and you don't get good properties of the material. Uh-huh. Group led by Haraguchi and others have used a process of gel formation in aqueous medium to create a composite of a particular type of clay and a particular polymer. Okay. This is a very fascinating polymer. It's clear, extremely flexible, and it has the ability to undergo huge elongations when subjected to stress. So it's a potentially very, very useful material in some uh, applications.
0: Wow! So we can extra, extra stretching uh, rubber band now, huh?
1: <laughs> so uh, very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Advanced Materials. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Kenneth Libricht will join us to discuss the physics of snowflakes. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Well, nothing defines the beauty of the winter months more than snow. And the constituents of snow itself, the snowflake, is perhaps one of nature's most intriguing structures. So varied in appearance it is often assumed that no two are alike. Well, how do snowflakes form and what can we learn from their beautiful structures? Well, joined us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss the structure of snowflakes is Professor Kenneth Libert. Professor Liberk is the professor and chair at the Department of Physics at Caltech, whose research spans many areas, including gravitational waves, tunable diode lasers, and crystal growth in ice. He has studied and documented the variety of snowflake structures in his book, The Field Guide to Snowflakes, and has had his pictures commemorated in a series of stamps by the United States Postal Service. Professor Librick, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Good to be here. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think it's really an area that a lot of people are fascinated with. they look at snow and think about it. I'm sure the question that you get asked all the time is, are in fact no two snowflakes actually alike?
2: Well, I hear that one a lot. That's true. And yeah, the short answer is that no two are exactly alike if you have a complex snowflake. The reason being is just there's so many possible ways of making a snowflake. The odds finding two exactly alike are astronomically small. But what makes it kind of interesting is that it's not just that no two snowflakes are exactly alike, because no two grains of sand are exactly alike either, but the crystals really are, uh, are remarkably diverse in their shapes. And uh, the reason for that is that the growth is very, very sensitive to temperature and humidity. So as crystals fall, they fall through different regions of, uh, of the cloud and each crystal experiences different conditions as a function of time, and that changes its growth. And because growth is so sensitive to these conditions, each one comes out different.
1: Uh, is there some sort of starting structure that most of these snowflakes come from?
2: The nucleus is just a piece of ice, which is, has this hexagonal structure. That's the way the molecules hook up and very small crystals tend to be simpler in shape. They'll be like little hexagonal prisms. And then as they get bigger, they start to branch and have side branches and all sorts of surface features.
1: And what leads to the branching what gives a very florid type of appearance?
2: That's an instability in the growth is the, the corners of a hexagonal plate stick out a little bit further, stick out further into the super saturated air, and they grow a little faster because they stick out farther. And when they grow faster, they tend to stick out even more. And then they grow faster still, and there's this positive feedback. And what often happens, not always, but often is that the six corners of the hexagon, this instability will set in, and it will cause six branches to sprout from the corners of the hexagon. And that's why you see snowflakes with
1: six branches. Uh, it often seems like a lot of these branches, they're symmetrical. one Are they, in fact, symmetrical? Are they, uh... They're not perfectly symmetrical,
2: mm. but they can be very nicely symmetrical. Now, there's a selection effect. and That is that people like me who go out and photograph snowflakes always go and look for the really nice symmetrical <laughs> ones. <laughs> so there's lots and lots and lots of ones that are not so symmetrical. Mm. But again, the reason for that is, is that a lot of people are kind of wondering how the arms, you know, know to grow with the same way. And it's not that they communicate, it's just that as crystal falls, the the crystal will go into a different condition, and that will cause the the growth to be different, and each of the six arms will experience that at the same time. Then it moves somewhere else, and it changes again, and again, each of the six arms is the same change at the same time. And so the six arms all grow more or less independently, and they all grow into complex shapes, but they can have uh, almost identical shapes.
1: So how does one actually go about photographing them and, and looking at them?
2: Well, I'm from Pasadena, so not around here, <laughs> <Okay>. but uh, <laughs> I've got a camera, uh, a microscope, and a camera that fits in a suitcase, and I go traveling to the frozen north in winter, and various places, Alaska, and Michigan, Vermont, and northern Ontario, and I go to these places because they have really nice crystals. So I'll set up my hardware outside, all has to be done outside, and catch crystals on a piece of cardboard, look around for the nice ones, and actually pick them up using a very small paintbrush, drop them onto a slide, and, and photograph them. It's fun. I like it. uh, Each crystal is different. You never know what you're going to find on a given snowstorm, and the pictures always are very pretty.
1: Do you ever get any funny looks uh, while you're picking up these snowflakes? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, are there any places that are the best for producing snowflakes? Florida's not so good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the best places are, I mean, I like northern Ontario. That's a good spot, and the reason is the temperature is is about right, which is around 0 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Those are the the best crystals appear at those temperatures. And it snows a lot. um, There's never much wind. So I can get a lot of nice pictures there in a hurry. Other places, I've been up to Fairbanks in January. That was the experience. Very cold at times. And the crystals tend to be more faceted and smaller because it's colder. Uh, So different regions have sort of different types of crystals, although it's mostly because the climate is different.
1: You've also tried to grow snowflakes in the lab. What have you learned about the process of crystal growth?
2: Call them uh, designer snowflakes. We yeah. can we can make them in the lab. I sort of got into this whole thing from the science and trying mm-hmm. to understand how crystals grow, and I got into ice because it's easy to work with and it's cheap. <laughs> it's a little like biologists uh, playing with fruit flies. It's uh, cheap and easy, and so you do that and you hope it might be good for something. Similarly, we're uh, using ice as a case study that applies to crystal growth in general. There's no real applications for studying crystal growth of ice, but one hopes it will be useful in trying to understand how crystals grow in general. And we grow all sorts of different crystals. I, I like to grow a lot of very simple hexagonal prism crystals because those are the easiest to study. But we've also been playing around with electrically and chemically modified growth and making things that even look a lot like snowflakes that fall from the sky.
1: How does one actually go about making these snowflakes?
2: Mm. It can get sort of arbitrarily complicated. One of the <laughs> okay. one of the techniques we use, is we have a diffusion chamber, which is warm on the top and cold on the bottom, and it's insulated. And we have water on the top, so the water vapor diffuses down and makes super-saturated air. And we put a, a needle or a wire inside this chamber and frost will grow on that. But then you get a bunch of crystals all at once. And so what we do is a very clever little thing is we put 2,000 volts on this wire and put a little uh, contaminant vapor in the chamber and it causes these very thin ice needles to form. And then we can grow snowflakes on the ends of the ice needles. So all of this is just things we've kind of uh, developed over the years, experimental techniques for growing crystals in different regimes.
1: Do you think it could be used eventually maybe for making better snow?
2: Well, key resorts don't make snow from vapor. They, they freeze droplets of water, so, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's, it's all kind of related, but I don't imagine that's going to be a real outcome. <laughs> I think it's more likely that we learn something about the basic physics of how crystals grow, and maybe something about chemically modified growth. And as you start to understand how one crystal grows in great detail, then it applies to other crystals, including semiconductor crystals, and diamonds, and other things that might have some economic interest.
1: The diamond crystals, certainly.
2: <laughs> well, there's a funny case where people have been able to make diamonds that are about a millimeter in size for 50 years, and yet so far nobody can make them uh, really very easily with uh, one centimeter diameter. So just going from one millimeter to one centimeter has been impossible over 50 years. One likes to think that if you knew and understood the crystal growth process better that, you know, you can do things you
1: couldn't do before. Right, right. Your photographs of the snowflakes have been recently commemorated by the U.S. Postal Service in a series of stamps. You know how to choose the pictures, and how did they actually become aware of the work?
2: Well, they tell me that they saw one of my books because I've written several books now on, on snowflakes and the science of snowflakes, uh, popular popular science type books. And they saw one and got the idea that they would make nice stamps. So they gave me a call, and it's where it uh, got started.
1: And, and did you choose the photos themselves?
2: I gave them a selection of my better pictures, and then they narrowed it down to four, and then sort of did all the design work. They're available now, and at post offices everywhere and online, and uh, they'll be available as long as postage is, well, for a long time. <laughs> but of course, after the postage rates go up, they might not be as much fun anymore, but...
1: Certainly very beautiful pictures, and I certainly hope people will go take a look at those, and of course all your books. Dr. Libric. I do want to thank you very much for talking about snowflakes. You bet. And you were just listening to Professor Kenneth Libric discussing the physics of snowflakes. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer that we found in the alley behind Area 51. The Grokatron 5000 today has chosen the topic, no two are alike. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 will like to know if they're unique like a snowflake or if they're just run of the mill. Dr. Lubrick, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Yes, so. <laughs> okay. Well, person number one, unique or run of the mill, Michael Jackson.
2: Uh, I would have to go with unique, um, without saying, I think. <laughs> i clear how you could get more unique than that.
1: <laughs> Number two, physicist, formerly at Caltech, Richard Feynman.
2: Oh, extremely unique. One of the smartest people ever. Really a fun person to have at a party. And I we're very sorry he's gone.
1: Yes, a lot of stories about him. Did you ever have any interactions with him?
2: Oh, yeah. I, he was here when I was at that. I came to a party at my house one time. And when Feynman comes to a party, see, normally at your party, people are milling around and chatting. When Feynman comes, he sits in the middle of the room, and everybody forms a circle around him. He's (laughs) extremely entertaining for about 45 minutes. Then he leaves, and the party goes back to everybody milling around him. (laughs) That's the way Feynman worked.
1: It's the nucleus for (laughs) that.
2: He was just so much fun to listen to.
1: Well, number three, someone who might also be fun to listen to, uh, Jerry Springer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. He's too run-of-the-mill for me. Now, his guests are very unique. (laughs) That's true like to watch him dance, though.
1: <laughs>
2: well, you know, watching the other people dance makes you look too bad, but watching Jerry is not so bad.
1: <laughs> number four, famed grand slalom skier Alberto Tomba.
2: Well, I don't know much about him. I guess he was a good skier, so he would have to be unique.
1: I'm sure he's appreciating the snow that's on the ground there. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Okay, and finally, uh, number five, our perennial favorite on this program, the president of the United States, George Bush.
2: If far too run-of-the-mill, <laughs> far too run-of-the-mill would like a president who could do better than the low grades that you got. Uh, somebody would keep us out of trouble a little better,
1: too. Well, uh, Dr. Librick, I do want to thank you for sticking around and playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about uh, all the fascinating things with snowflakes. Sure. Whoa, man, I'm, like, totally surfing the wave of chaos, man. It's not like chaos. It's disorder, dude. It's entropy, and it's a measure of the disorder of the universe. Whoa. Everything's coming together.
0: Mm, and Yoda with this week's question of the week. Reveal the mysteries of the universe, it will. The plus form it is. Mm, but what does it do? If you know or think you know, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just balance that equation. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.